Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn from a drizzly and foggy Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller from a cold and damp south-east London. Uh, on the day we record, uh, we wish a happy birthday to Alzari Joseph and to Jermaine Blackwood, both the West Indies. That's very cheerful. And we have the man who we both regard as the premier cricket commentator, not just in the West Indies, but across the world. We're delighted to welcome back, really by popular request, Fazir Muhammad. And uh, we envy him because he's actually in Sri Lanka, about to comment on the West Indies series over there. And he's enjoying, I think, better conditions than we are here. Welcome back, Fazir. Great to be back, and I'll take all the flattery I can get. And uh, it, it is a, a gloriously sunny Saturday afternoon as I'm speaking to you here. I'm not so sure I'm looking forward to the cricket itself, because given the way the West Indies would have struggled of late in Test match cricket, uh, it, it may not be the best tale to tell over the next couple of weeks, but uh, still happy to be with you once again. Well, it's a very important series, though, because they're two struggling teams, aren't they? Sri Lanka and West Indies, the two teams which have given incredible joy to, to cricket around the world. So we will be watching it very carefully and with cons- a little bit of concern, perhaps. Yeah, and I think that that, that concern will be, will be justified because uh, it, it's, it's a, a wider issue about uh, the, the the global balance and, uh, and the way the game is structured. But hopefully we'll have time to discuss some of those things. I think when we spoke last year, we spoke quite a lot about the Black Lives Matter agenda, both in Britain and in the West Indies, and how it's been expressed over there. Just a factual question first. Um, you mentioned two campaigns in the West Indies at the moment over statues of Columbus and Nelson. I just wondered if well, these statues are still standing or uh, whether anything's happened to them, whether they've been described well, differently or something like that. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting because the, the one in Barbados, the Nelson statue in Bridgetown, that has been removed. And of course, at the end of November, uh, Barbados is going to remove the Queen as the head of state. They are going to become a republic on what would usually be their Independence Day, November the 30th. And that will become their Republic Day. So there's no uh, Nelson statue anymore in Bridgetown. On the contrary, in Trinidad and Tobago, even though the Prime Minister in a pre-election promise last year promised consultation on the fate of the Columbus statue in downtown Port of Spain, that consultation has yet to to happen. So it just seems to be another one of those uh, empty promises. And it remains a sore point with a few people, not not a whole lot. It's not a, a massive issue. But it remains a sore point that the statue of Columbus remains in downtown Port of Spain, given all of the facts that we know about that colonial experience. It's very interesting that because broken promises, they're always broken by politicians for a reason. So there will be opposition. There'll be something he's afraid of. What, are the, what is the opposition to uh, dismantling the Columbus statue? He's afraid of the establishment uh, because he is part of that political establishment. uh, And even though uh, our prime minister, Dr. Keith Rowley of Trinidad and Tobago, is a man of African descent from the island of Tobago, there is that strong association with the, the parliamentary structures and the style of governance that was granted to us by the United Kingdom with all those years of uh, colonialism. So to to suggest that he would be at the forefront of removing 
that statue of Columbus will actually be going against the grain because there are many, not just people who are of, of European ancestry or who are historically with British ancestry who wanted to remain. Uh, there are many uh, people of color who say, why should it be removed? Because uh, they see it as something positive. Uh, the impact of, uh, of Columbus and indeed European uh, colonization as civilizing uh, black and brown people, as offensive as, as it will sound in the present time. There are many who still hold to that view that were it not for uh, the white colonizers, that we'd all be in grass skirts swinging from vines. And, and again, as offensive as that might sound. Very interesting. Britain must take responsibility for many things. I don't think we need to take responsibility for Christopher Columbus's excursion in, in 1492, which set in motion, of course, up to a pattern of atrocities and genocide and um, the obliteration of, of, of native indigenous peoples um, in both sides of North America. That's correct. And uh, I think at, at the end of it all, it, it's not so much about the, the, the British colonialism experience in this case, but it is the fact that uh, Christopher Columbus's arrival in this part of the world actually resulted in a situation which we had slavery, we had dentorship, it's created a beautiful melting pot of peoples, but it, it has been so sanitized over so many centuries that it's only now within the last 30, 40, 50 years, and of course, accelerated by the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, again, primarily coming out of the United States, uh, that there's a greater recognition that, look, we need to record history as it was, not as it has been presented for different reasons. And it's not about just demolishing statues, but putting them in a proper historical context in a museum, for example, because uh, you wouldn't see a statue of Hitler uh, in any prominent place anywhere in the world, even though he had a major impact on global events some 70 years ago. Fascinating. Since last year, the Black Lives Matter agenda has made become tremendously more salient in Britain and um, uh, in particular in, um, in cricket. We've seen massive campaigning and a massive opening out of the issue of racism in English cricket. I just wondered if... Um, Recent events have had any sort of impact or influence in the West Indies. Are they being followed over there and um, have they influenced developments over there? I wouldn't say that from what I've been able to detect that it's influenced developments. I know it's been followed very keenly because many people, again, because of our historical connections, would have had a long association with England, with English cricket, with our own different experiences, either as tourists or as commentators or as playing club cricket even in the, in the UK. So, so it's, it's being followed with, with a great deal of interest and it really hasn't influenced what would be happening in our part of the world to any significant degree, because that momentum would have started a long time ago. But uh, what is coming out is what many people are saying, look, we knew all of this was going on anyway, that it was never really overt and right in your face, but it was there was a strong undercurrent of us and them. And whether you fitted into the us or the them, or whether you had to be someone you're not to fit in with everybody else in the cricketing environment, in the UK, you, you get a lot of that discussion taking place very, very quietly. There, there's no real major outcry in relation to what we heard from that testimony from Azim Rafiq, 
uh, for example. You don't get that happening in the Caribbean right now. You don't see letters to the editor or, or much discussion in relation to that. But many people are following it closely uh, because when you talk to a lot of people associated with West Indies cricket who have played in England, who have spent time in England, they tell you their own stories and their own experiences. And the, the, the fact that for many people in England, they, what is, would be considered racism or uh, being slighted uh, to people of color is not even considered that much of a deal because that's just the way it is in many cases. It's a very interesting thing. I, can I ask, I'll put you a thesis. I mean, Michael Holding demolished the England batting time and again with his beautiful artistry in his actual career. But that statement he made last year, did that demolish the English cricket establishment the way it demolished the bowling? Because it enabled, it created a new environment where Azim Rafiq could say, and so many other people could come out and say, he could, holding created the space for them to come forward. I, I think it, it was a significant input, probably as devastating as those Yorkers that you mentioned, but whether it's demolished uh, English cricket, I don't think it has, because look, look at what England did uh, as far as going to Pakistan. They opted not to go to Pakistan with the from, from what I can detect, the, the most spurious of reasons, uh, simply because New Zealand had, had, had jumped ship uh, pretty early. They decided that they would not go just for a four-day assignment. Uh, and, and basically, the, the, the message continues to be from the ECB that we will do things the way we want. And if you don't like it, that's just too bad because we're among the big three, Australia and India being the others. And, and, and what is going on now, it's probably going to take a long time for any fundamental change to happen, but I don't detect any real change at the level of the ECB. I think, I, I think there have been, been plunged into crisis. There, there's a reorganisation. George DeBell, the, the terrific cricket journalist who has done so much bringing it to light, says that he likes the, the shape of the changes. I mean, the, there is an open acknowledgement now from the most senior levels of English cricket that there is a institutional problem, a structural problem of, of racism and that which they've got to confront. Doesn't that mean a step forward? It, it is a step forward, but I, I go by, by rather than words, I go by actions, Peter. And, and it, it's all well and good to sing the right song. But if you are dancing to a different tune at the first opportunity, when, when you've got a chance to really show that you're really interested in the good of the game at a broader international level or the good of the game within, within your own country, then the, the, the actions speak louder. And, and I think what we, we heard from Azim Rafiq is nothing new. And, and, and the fact is, why did it have to take a situation like this? And, and again, even the, the, the behavior of Yorkshire County Cricket Club over this entire episode, uh, even the fact that you had the England captain, Joe Root, not even wanting to speak about it, Root Crochet said that he never noticed anything. Now that's very remarkable, isn't it? It's not, it, he has to be very um, deaf and blind not to, to have shared a, you know, a flat with Gary Balance and been in part of that environment for 15 years not to have noticed anything, isn't it? Well, it, it really depends on what he would consider to be racism. I, I, again, making a comment about you lot or elephant washers or whatever else. So, you know, it's the, the last thing you could get from an, uh, from the, the, the Asians with their deep pockets for them to, to pull out anything to, to, to sponsor uh, anything or the other, any sort of those disparaging remarks, they may not see that as racism. 
but, but so again, from from his point of view, who, whoever makes a comment in that of, of that nature or, or makes uh, a, a, a sort of a reference to people of color in ways that that could be interpreted as perfectly normal in pub conversation or dressing room conversation, they won't see that as racist because again, from from their point of view, that that's just the way it is. That's just the way it's been. In the same way, in our Caribbean territories. We make references to people of color. We make references uh, to people of different uh, backgrounds of Chinese descent, African descent, Indian descent, Asian descent that would be considered unacceptable in, in England, not just now, but, but many times before. References to people of color and so on, that would be considered unacceptable. The P word, for example, when you're talking about people from Pakistan, that is deeply offensive in the UK you can say it up and down the Caribbean and people will wonder what's the fuss. So uh, again, it really depends on the individual. And if we don't recognize or respect that for someone, whether we consider it offensive or not, that for someone else, for some other group, some other uh, race or ethnicity or nationality, a particular term or reference or, or, or comment is offensive. And if we don't even are willing to acknowledge that, then we're never going, going to even begin to really deal with this issue. Let's pick you up on one thing there, which you said this Azim Rafiq issue has primarily been about the treatment of South Asian cricketers in, in English in English cricket. You said you've spoken to um, many West Indian cricketers who played the county game over the years, and they've given so much to it. I'm interested. Um, I don't want you to name names or betray confidences, but what do you say their experience has been? The experience is pretty much the same, that, that essentially you're welcomed, you're treated as, as one of the group when you're playing cricket, when, you, when you're after, after play, if you're socialising, sharing a few drinks and, and whatever else it is. But there's always that undercurrent about knowing your place, about understanding there's the, the, that when you... Many a, a former player would make the, the point that they feel welcome, but as soon as they they, they walk away from, from a conversation, and, and they, 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 there's always that, that feeling that there's a different conversation that's going on. Apart from the, the obvious uh, overt racist uh, experiences that they would have had at various grounds, at various venues, and, and, and the, the, the comments that they would have had. And also the fact that for many West Indian cricketers, they would feel the hurt of their fellow West Indians living in the UK who've had to endure second-class or third-class status for, for, for decades since their arrival post-World War II. And, and, and they would share those, those comments. And that's why when Michael Holding talked about the experience of standing uh, outside Lords with his Portuguese uh, wife, well, Portuguese ancestry, she's born in Antigua, but because she's white, and, and, and a West Indian told him, look, put her in front because the taxis are going to go past you because you're black, but they'll stop because she's white. All of those things just add up. We must turn this into a transformational moment, into a revolution in the way that we run cricket. And actually, it goes to the heart of British society itself. What should we now do? You're saying we haven't done enough. What, do, what does Britain and, Eng and, in particular, English cricket now need to do? I think English cricket needs to own up to the realities and just simply say that, look, 
In the same way that Azim Rafiq had to admit that he made anti-Semitic comments some 10 years ago, and he owned it. Just own up to it. Just, just own it. Don't make excuses. Don't say, well, that was 10 years ago. That, that I, I, was, I was a young and I, I, I didn't realize that this would have caused so much outrage. And I apologize for the offense that would have been caused. Just own up to it. Just simply say that, look, what we have said, what we have done, what we have been taken for granted, what we consider to be normal behavior is, is, is really deeply offensive to many. And we just simply did not, did not appreciate what we were doing. And it was simply wrong. Rather than try to color it with all sorts of beautiful legalized phrases and words, just simply own up to the wrongs that have been done because if you if you're not going to properly own up to it in the very first place, you're not going to solve it. Maybe just to sum up this conversation before we move on to the many other pressing issues we we have, do you rather agree that we need to move on to something a version of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, charted by uh, Nelson Mandela and Duclerc in South Africa at the end of apartheid? Well, well, well. Hopefully, better than that, because uh, as you see, what would have happened? It, it took. Uh, declared to die to, to, to offer uh, an apology uh, and even then it was a watered down apology but but you look at South Africa now 2021 what some 27 years since 1994 and the vast majority of the of the black population are still living in poverty because of corruption for a number of factors institutional racism which is still in place so it, it's all well and good to have truth and reconciliation but it has to be followed up by real action uh, let's now move on to West Indies cricket. I mean, how much cricket is now being played in the West Indies and how many islands are still subject to pandemic issues? That's a major problem for us right now because our, our regional first-class season was aborted in just around March of 2020, uh, just when the pandemic hit uh, the Caribbean territories. And it's yet to restart. Uh, uh, we've had, of course, the CPL, uh, we've had international cricket uh, back in the West Indies, which is good. Uh, but as far as the regional game, uh, that, that really hasn't been taking place. And indeed, the club game in the various territories, that, that has also been stalled uh, by the pandemic. And, and in fact, right now, in the same way that in northern uh, climes and northern parts of the world, uh, where you have different waves uh, hitting those countries, uh, in uh, the Caribbean, you now have a situation where uh, there's a, a real rise of the Delta variant. So there's little prospect uh, of the game being played at a club level in the various territories. And that, that's a major worry because uh, a lot of the young talent, a lot of the, the, the rising stars, you, you, you might want to term them, of West Indies cricket, aren't really getting the opportunity to develop their games in the longer format. It's all well and good to be playing a bit of T20 and a bit of knockabout cricket here and there, but to be playing steady weekend after weekend, uh, long form cricket and, and really getting into the groove of the game and the requirements of the longer form of the game, that isn't happening right now and it's clearly impacting uh, on, on the game at the higher levels. It's actually, that's a real worry, isn't it? Because West Indies is, is precariously poised as a five-day test nation now. Uh, that's another... Now, get to, to walk us in that context, walk us through the Sri Lankan tour and the, and the concerns we have, which we talked about earlier. 
I, th I think there are a lot of concerns. When when just when you look at uh, this series, for example, uh, the, the West Indies started the year very brightly, winning two Test matches in Bangladesh, which hardly any one of us I would have expected them to do. And then they had two Test matches against Sri Lanka in Antigua on pretty flat pitches that ended in draws. But all of that even whatever optimism would have been generated by that was shown to be a false dawn by the way the South Africans demolished the West Indies in two test matches in St. Lucia. In June, they were on sporting pitches. It assisted the fast bowlers and the West Indies batsmen to a man were all found wanting. They all struggled against the fast bowlers. And then came Pakistan and Shaheen Shah Afridi. And but, but for Pakistan's own poor catching, Pakistan would have easily won the series 2-0, but uh, the West Indies scraped a one-wicket a one win in the first Test match, was soundly beaten in the second Test match, both played in Jamaica. So now coming to this two-Test series again, and that's another talking point, what do you really hope to gain from playing two Test matches? Uh, and, and the West Indies are doing it for a fifth time this year. And again, that highlights the imbalance in the international game. But the West Indies will be underdogs going into these two test matches in goal because it's felt it's going to really favor the spinners and the West Indies are notoriously struggling when it comes to take on slow bowling. They've never won a test match in Sri Lanka. Uh, the mere fact that you've got someone making his test debut, uh, Jeremy Salozano, as an opening batsman with a first-class average of 23.41, 23.41 in first-class cricket, making a test match debut as an opening batsman, that really encapsulates the plight of, of West Indies cricket right now, at, at the batting level at least. Yes, if you, your batting is it's sort of it's awful, really, isn't it? Your high, highest-ranked batsman is, is Blackwood, isn't it? He's number 33 in the world. That rankings of a test batting average of 30.5. Then Holder, who isn't even a specialist batsman. What caused this? catastrophic, I think we have to call it a catastrophic decline in the batting of a nation which has produced, you know, the Conrad Hunts, the Brian Laras, the Chandra Pauls. What's happened? A number of factors, a number of factors. Uh, complacency has, has to come into it. The nature of our pitches, uh, the pitches have been slow and low for a, for a long, long time. There hasn't been that insistence on quality. Uh, just the fiasco of the World T20, for example, where the West Indies picked a team that was clearly showing players who were past their best, but were preoccupied with name and fame and reputation. There is that lingering uh, desire to recreate the glory of past years without working on the problems on the ground right now. So you have a situation where young players are coming into the system uh, who are not really being pushed to excel you have players averaging in the 20s and the 30s who are heralded as, as rising stars and great players and so on. Uh, and we've gone away, we've fallen away from that insistence on a level of competitiveness and a very high standard from even the club game. The, the, the standards are very mediocre. The quality of competition is very poor. Uh, players uh, with, with just one or two half centuries are getting to a national team. They, they play for a long time without even a first-class 100 and somehow get an opportunity in a West Indies A team or a B team and, and so on. So uh, there are opportunities that, that seem to reward mediocrity. So there's really no burning desire to excel 
to, to ensure that you achieve a level of, of performance that takes us back to those halcyon days. It's, it's mediocrity pays off in Western East cricket right now. Careful listeners will have noticed that I'm asking all the questions at the moment. Unfortunately, there's been an injury to one of our players. Uh, Richard Heller's um, internet connection seems to have gone astray and he's been taken off the field hurt. And I'm going to carry on with the remainder. I have the joy of, of asking questions of Fazir and uh, work with while Richard languishes in the pavilion. Um, Fazir, taking us back into, um, into the decline of West Indies cricket, it is so important that you recover and become the wonderful presence you've always been. I mean, how important actually is a domestic first-class game? And Gary Sobers had hardly played one match before he, uh, he kind of made this wonderful appearance on the Test Match uh, arena. Yeah, yeah, he played one match, but the, the club competition in his native Barbados was, was so, so fierce, so intense, that the, the club game, without even playing a game for Barbados and therefore bringing himself to the attention of the selectors uh, in, in the West Indies selectors, would have prepared him because he was a teenager playing for the police club and, and, and really took, taking on some of the best players in the West Indies at the time because that was the era when you didn't have a lot of West Indians playing on the English county circuit or the league circuit. So in your domestic game, you'd be coming up against the best batsmen in, in Barbados, the best bowlers. So it prepared you. And uh, right the way up to the 70s and the 80s and even a, a touch of the 90s, uh, you had a level of competition in our regional first-class game, even our club game, where you'd have a lot of the test players, a lot of the international cricketers coming back to, to represent their teams and their clubs. Of course, that isn't happening anymore because the vast majority of them are on duty in all different parts of the world, whether it's with the West Indies or whether with a T20 franchise or some other assignment, because it's far more lucrative. It's, it's as simple as that. The economics of it, cricket is very difficult to sustain financially in our part of the world, because you're talking about between 14, 15, 16 disparate territories, all very tiny economies. Uh, Jamaica with a population of three point something million would be the largest of the territories, uh, some financially stronger than others, but even the strongest financially find it very difficult to sustain the game at, at the domestic level. Cricket West Indies had to take a loan from the ECB last year of over 3 million US until they got the usual subvention from the ICC. So it's a very difficult environment to sustain the game at the grassroots level uh, with, without the necessary funding and, and in the absence of a lot of your top players. Well, to conclude this section of our conversation, I mean, I have to ask you, I mean, is West Indies test cricket, as opposed to the 2020 or 50-50 format, is it in danger of extinction? That's a strong term, extinction. I wouldn't say extinction. I would say at this point, lurching towards irrelevance, where the West Indies are going to remain, as we have been for quite some time, within the lower reaches of test cricket, and it has to be said as well, it's not about making excuses because this entire situation is primarily of the West Indies' own making for many different reasons that we've discussed before. But it doesn't help when you are only playing two test series. Uh, you're, you're not getting opportunities for your blossoming talent 
to play a four-test series or a five-test series. That doesn't happen anymore uh, for, for many test-playing nations. So as I said before, the West Indies are in their fifth two-test series in 2021. So, so yes, the, the, the interest is there, the passion is there, the fans are always complaining, there are always talk shows, there's always that interest. Uh, so the, the interest will always be there for West Indies in test cricket, but I fear the West Indies will remain in a level of mediocrity lurching towards irrelevance for quite some time. Is there a danger also that others will predate on West Indies cricket? I, I, was, I still found it very troubling that Jofra Archer, who was such a brilliant bowler, uh, ended up playing for England. It, you know, if, uh, uh, and really he, he, he was brought up in the West Indies. Did he play for West Indies under 19s? And then he go, goes and plays for England. Is that, is that that isn't in the? I can see it's great for Joffrey, it's great for England, but there's a great deep worry about what if you're going to lose your greatest players to uh, other nations. Yeah, and, and that is a genuine concern. In fact, when Joffrey Archer uh, confirmed his status as wanting to represent England, uh, the CEO of Cricket Western is Johnny Grave, who's an Englishman, worked with Surrey County Cricket Club uh, for a long time. He referred to it as poaching uh, by England, but uh, Jofra Archer felt slighted when he wasn't selected for the West Indies under-19 team a few years ago, and he decided to throw in his lot uh, for England, much like Chris Jordan, uh, much like so many other players before him. But of course, in the time of Roland Butcher and Gladstone Small uh, and so many others of the 80s and 90s, it was probably more for a lack of opportunity when the West Indies was just so formidable, there was really no place uh, for, for players to get in. Uh, but but now you have a situation where uh, the, the West Indies, uh, as a test-playing nation, continues to struggle, to con continues to, 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 to lack the funding to really sustain the game. And there are so many more attractive opportunities, especially in England. And because of that historical connection, because you have English counties coming to Barbados every winter and they're identifying talents, seeing a lot of young talent. In fact, the young man who was one of the co-captains of uh, the England under-19s in the series against the West Indies a couple months ago, uh, young Jason Bethel. I, I played against his father, Graham Bethel, uh, who was an outstanding under-19 player in the 1983 season. Uh, but, but again, uh, because the West Indies were so strong at that time, he really didn't see a future for himself playing cricket in the West Indies, moved to England. His son now plays for England and the, he's got better opportunities. I'm sure he will prosper in the game in England. Can the growth of the USA somehow help the West Indies? I mean, the, it's quite exciting, isn't it, that the West, that, that the West Indies will co-host the next T20 World Cup with the United States and that can broaden that presence of West Indies cricket on the face of it, it, it sounds attractive and Cricket West Indies have made all the right noises about it with the announcement a few days ago that there will be that joint hosting uh, with the, the United States. But the concern is that from, from the West Indies side of it, the, the game in the USA now is almost entirely dominated by the those with subcontinental roots. And there's nothing wrong with that because the game is primarily a, a game of those who would have come from the West Indies, from the Caribbean, from India, from England, from uh, other parts of the, of the Indian subcontinent, Pakistan, and so on. But the feeling is that more and more, 
players of Caribbean ancestry, of West Indian ancestry, uh, are not getting the opportunities. They're not as interested as they would have been before in the game. It's pretty much like what is happening in the United Kingdom, where a lot of Caribbean interest in the game uh, is, is waning. You see more interest in football, more opportunities in football. Your Marcus Rashfords and so on are seen as prominent individuals in the game. It's same thing in the USA. When six years ago there was that Warren versus Tendulka festival series of matches, it was a series that primarily focused on the Asian diaspora, the Indian subcontinental diaspora, rather than the Caribbean diaspora. So yes, it'd be a fantastic opportunity to broaden interest in the game in the United States, whether it makes a difference as to the Caribbean roots in the United States, it's, it's highly questionable. Now, a few weeks ago, we interviewed the historian David Woodhouse. Actually, have you read it yet? The, his wonderful new book on the um, England tour of the West Indies under Hutton in 1953-4. I have just started reading it using my time here in Sri Lanka to just catch up on, on that a bit. But it's interesting to, to realize how turbulent that tour was. But uh, it, it, I'm sure it'll make for interesting reading. Yeah, but one of the points he makes uh, is very of keen interest to you. The ball-by-ball commentary on test matches reached the West Indies 20 years earlier than it did to Britain. And was that, do we think, a major factor in creating a common West Indies identity? It certainly was. Uh, when, you, when you think about it, for a long time, the focus would have been on the individual territories, but it's cricket that, that brought us together. Uh, when, when we think about uh, the, the West Indies in, in other sports, there, there's no such thing as the West Indies. You have Jamaica in track and field and, and, and football and so on. All the other sports, with one or two exceptions, compete primarily as individual territories. But when you talk about commentary, uh, Commentary both unites and divides because we've had situations over the years where commentators have been barred from commentary boxes in different territories because they were perceived to be anti-players from that particular country. There have been calypsos that were sung against player against, for, for example, Colin Croft, who as well, many would know, very outspoken in the game. Uh, he was at one time barred from commentating in Antigua because he had made disparaging comments about the Antigua Recreation Ground. So, so yes, the, the commentary itself, the nature of the game, the describing of the game, the great voices, Tony Cozier, Red Pereira, Rex Alston, and so many other names going way, way back, uh, would have really galvanized interest in West Indies cricket. But depending on what was said by these very same commentators, would have fired up those uh, insularities, those island rivalries, and probably contributed to a, a level of competitiveness that really fueled those higher standards in our game. On the subject of island rivalries, another thought emerges from that Woodhouse book, which is, I mean, he said, you know, that there were a lot of rivalries going back in the 70 years to the days of Hutton, but actually there were only four main centres at that time. Now we're dealing with 13, 12, different nations. I mean, <laughs> I must say, one of the amazing statements in the book, which I hadn't really gripped, that Georgetown is as far from Kingston as Moscow is from London. You are very, very uh, far apart. Now, is this a problem? 
I, I wouldn't say that in any way was a, a problem. The, I think the problem of insularity and, and narrow-mindedness and, and pettiness it would, be, would be the problem. Whether it was four territories, we had it uh, at that time when it was just Guyana or British Guyana as it was then, Trinidad and Tobago, Barbados and Jamaica. They were the four territories that ruled the game from our first test match in 1928, basically until the mid-1960s, when you actually had players from the so-called small islands, Mike Finley, the wicketkeeper batsman from St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And then, of course, you had the great avalanche that uh, was started by Andy Roberts and Viv Richards in 1974, that it really revealed to us for how many years players from these so-called smaller territories, the Windward and Leeward Islands, St. Vincent, Grenada, St. Lucia, Antigua, uh, Dominica, Nevis, St. Kitts, that those players have been ignored. Those players were ostracized, basically, for decades. And, and therefore, I think what really contributed to the great strength of Western East cricket in that dominating period, 1980 to 1995, is when the West Indies finally tapped into that tremendous reservoir of talent that they would have ignored for so many years. Yes, there was always the insularity. The insularity continued even in the period of great dominance where, where people protested, people, uh, uh, prime ministers protested when their favorite players weren't selected. It's always been there. But that, that issue of the disparate territories, I think it has actually strengthened uh, the, the, the game in the West Indies uh, before the chaos that ensued subsequently. Very welcome news has, has just come uh, over the uh, loudspeaker that Richard Heller is coming back on the field after his exit due to injury and he's going to rejoin us at the uh, pavilion end. Uh, Richard, can I hand over to you? Well, you can. The, 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 that news is usually good news for the opposition. Um, but I'm very glad to be back. And um, I was just thinking of West Indian Cricket Administration. I was wondering what sort of reward there is for being a great cricket administrator in the West Indies if you expect to make your subsequent career back in um, in your own country. Do you get a reward for running West Indian cricket really well or do you still expect to be judged by what you do for your own nation? Well, the bottom line is anything involved in West Indies cricket is a thankless task because if you do something that, that's right, there'll be so many others uh, for, for different reasons uh, who will uh, impale you for, for, for showing priorities or biases towards uh, different individuals or different territories. That, that, that will never change. In good times and bad times, that will always be an issue. Even when the West Indies were the most dominant force in the game, uh, the, the, the administrators were ridiculed. So you could only imagine how they're being regarded now. So at the end of the day, you really have to be made of sterner stuff to tell yourself that what you're doing is for the long-term good of the game. The unfortunate thing is that far too many of our administrators, even the present crop, seem to be always leaning towards doing what is popular rather than doing what is right. And that's why I reference the T20 uh, squad selection, which was clearly which was clearly a, a, a selection that, that didn't make a lot of cricketing sense, although it was very popular uh, with the global audience who saw all the big names and so on. And that, that's where the difficulty comes in, uh, because as many of these administrators remind us, 
They have to go back to their home territories. They have to go back in regular life and business and so on uh, when their administration period is over. And they have to endure the constant sniping and harping over what decisions that they would have made. But the, again, who, this is why it's a difficult job. And if you're not prepared to face up to that, then maybe you shouldn't do it because the, we need to have people of sternest stuff making tough decisions in the best interest of West Indies cricket not pandering to the whims and fancies of a populist element. That's right. Any, have there been any moves by any of the nations or islands to secede from West Indian cricket altogether or their own um, internationals? I remember Barbados took on the rest of the world in the 1960s. Any, move, any recent sort of moves like that? Nothing that is, you would consider serious. And I read that uh, when, when that was done in 1966 to celebrate Barbados's independence, uh, Sir Frank Worrell, who was uh, ailing at that time and was a few months away from passing away, he severely criticized the authorities for doing that, for Barbados taking on a rest of the world team. Just about 10 years ago, we had Trinidad and Tobago exploring the idea of participating in one day internationals as a separate entity. And every so often you would have that popping up whenever a particular territory has a significant number of players in the West Indies team, there'll be that discussion, but it never really amounts to much. There will be those who will, will talk a good game, but when it comes to actually taking it a step further, it never really happens. And I was, I was actually deeply offended when I heard some international writers on the game when we were struggling 10, 15 years ago, talking about, well, you know, it might be a good thing for the West Indies to, to go as separate territories because that shows complete ignorance for what the West Indies is all about. We don't have a lot as far as institutions uh, that hold our different territories together, as, as, as we've said, from Georgetown to Kingston. But cricket is one of them. And to just simply suggest that going through a bad patch of 5, 10, 15, even 20 years means that you abandon 92 years of history is, is just so, so shallow and narrow-minded. I was really taken aback by it. Mm, that's a very powerful message indeed. Um, for Zid, we haven't talked about women's cricket in the West Indies. How are the West Indies women performing at the moment? Well, I'm happy to say that uh, we haven't done too badly of late after there was a, a real dip in form. The, the West Indies women were actually at the vanguard uh, for Caribbean cricket up until 2016 when they won the World T20 mere hours before the men won the World T20 in Kolkata. They had reached the final of the 50-over tournament in 2013. But then something went desperately wrong mere months after that. They were barely competitive in the 50-over World Cup in 2017. And they've been struggling since that time to really get their act back together. We now have Courtney Walsh, the outstanding former test bowler, leading wicket-taker, former captain. He's now the, the head coach, Robert Samuels, former test batsman, is an assistant coach. They've just been to Pakistan, winning a, a three-match series, 3-0. They're now in Zimbabwe, about to start the qualifying phase for the 50-over World Cup. So things are looking up again for the women's game. Uh, and it, it's good to, to, to see that happening, even as we're hearing a, a lot of comments that suggest that, well, you know, we need to pool all of our limited resources and focus on reviving the men's game, which, which is very disrespectful and almost misogynistic, uh, because to suggest that the West Indies men's team problems have a lot to do with finance, 
misses the point completely. It's about poor administration, poor standards, letting standards slip. It's not really about finance. And to, to simply suggest that the women should suffer because the men must be prioritized is, is a very sad perspective to hear from some people within our Caribbean region. Zia, your last appearance with us, you absolutely delighted listeners um, with a calypso and hope we can prevail upon you to um, delight them once again and ourselves. Lots of calypsos I know about um, sort of contemporary political issues or whatever, but have you got one that sort of reflects West Indian cricket or says something about West Indian cricket? Well, my favourite cricket of all time is Andy Roberts, and I'm going to give you a verse from the Calypsonian short shirt from the island of Antigua. And uh, he was the dominant Calypsonian of the time in the 1970s. And he is singing this song to Andy Roberts about Vivian Richards and uh, basically saying the, how great uh, Vivian Richards was. That was 1976 when he had that phenomenal year of scoring tons of runs all over the world. Uh, so here goes uh, with a bit. And apologies to everyone whose who's airbells uh, will be suffering for a few seconds. <laughs> but uh, here goes. No bowler holds a terror for Vivian Richards, not Thompson and Lily, not Bedi, not Chandrasekhar. Perfect quality of body and mind. That brother is really dynamite. Pace or spin, he don't give a France where you're bowling him. Fast or slowly, you're going back to the boundary, Andy. That's oh. the best I can manage. When can we expect the recording contract and the first album? It's, I've been waiting since 2017. And <laughs> thankfully, the, the recording companies have better sense than looking in my direction. I don't know. I think, Richard, that's a very nice idea. I think Fazir's Calypso's. To be honest, it was worth this whole podcast just for those well, beautiful words. Well, I'm only sorry. I'm very glad I could catch it at the end. I'm so very sorry I had to miss so much of it for technical reasons. Fazir, um, we've let you get on with um, your very important work in Sri Lanka with a certain amount of envy. But thank you very, very much for joining us again. And perhaps you will... Yet again, uh, perhaps at better times for West Indian cricket too. Let's hope so. And thank you very much once again. It's always a privilege to chat with you on the game. Thank you, Fazir. And it's goodbye for me, Peter O'Born, in a, in a misty Wiltshire. It's goodbye for me, Richard Heller. It's cold and damp in, uh, in South East London, as it was before. <laughs>